Welcome to the Mainline Podcast. I'm Adam Jacquez, joined as always by Tyler Burton, and we're getting into a championship series down in Oklahoma City. It's Oklahoma versus Florida State. We're going to dive into all that, and we'll talk a little bit of baseball as our season comes to a conclusion as well uh, here at the end of the podcast. So uh, before we dive into what Florida State and the Seminoles are going to bring to the field, Tyler, how are you doing? I'm good, Adam. Stickball podcast only for the second uh, straight week. So things are good, man. Excited. Um, kind of feels like, you know, we've gone through this entire softball season, Patty Gasso squad. It's been building and building up to this moment. And I'm very excited for the championship series to get started tomorrow night, Florida state. Uh, I kind of, I feel, you know, pretty confident, Adam. I know that, you know, on last week's episode, we talked about, you know, Oklahoma state, Tennessee, were the two teams in orange, maybe Oklahoma's biggest challengers. Uh, but you know, after watching the way that the Seminoles have played, you know, each of the last, you know, three games in Oklahoma city, I kind of feel pretty, uh, I feel like as softball fans, we're getting the two best teams at the very end uh, competing for the national championship. So excited for this thing to get kicked off tomorrow night. Well, it wasn't easy for OU to get to this point. We certainly sweated it out both matchups against Stanford. Tennessee was a game that I think I think they beat themselves mentally before that game ever started with the way that Tennessee's coach handled that. And they, they probably put themselves in such a bad mental position when they even had to go up to, against Florida State there the other day. So uh, Tennessee may, may very well be OU's toughest competition. They just didn't show it in that one particular matchup. And then uh, really shot themselves in the foot uh, against uh, Florida State just by going with that strategy. Uh, mm-hmm. But Stanford, with all due respect, I don't think it was a team that OU thought, hey, you know, OU's going to struggle with Stanford or the Cardinals. But you pointed out uh, a week ago on this podcast that Kennedy was going to be a, a really tough pitcher to overcome. And, uh, man, I got to give her all props and respect because uh, she was incredible uh, in both matchups <laughs> against the Sooners. Yeah, I knew that Kennedy was going to be good coming into the Women's College World Series, but I didn't think that she was going to be that good, especially two, uh, you know, in two appearances uh, against Oklahoma, uh, giving up giving up just four runs and ten innings of work against the Sooners. So uh, Patty talked about it in the post game press conference after the first matchup, the first win over Stanford, that whenever the bracket was kind of revealed and Oklahoma knew coming into Oklahoma City that Stanford, while you know they were a little bit higher seed than some of the other opponents in the uh, in the tournament, she knew that because of the pitching staff of the Cardinal, that that was going to be a tough matchup for Oklahoma. And, you know, we'll talk about it here in a little bit, how battle-tested Oklahoma is because of having to face that Cardinal pitching staff, how, you know, they are ready and prepared for Florida State. But, yeah, you got to give all the credit in the world to Stanford, uh, a team, you know, offensively, uh, was lacking by comparison to, you know, the rest of the field in the College World Series. But the pitching staff, uh, that this team has showed, you know, uh, Kennedy, we hope that she's in Oklahoma uniform this time next year. Uh, but <laughs> just having a chance to, to watch her and watch that program, the, the, the job that they've done, um, it, it's been a lot of fun to watch. And Oklahoma, they had to earn it uh, in both victories uh, against Stanford. And, uh, again, uh, hats off to Stanford on an uh, incredible season and all the respect in the world for Stanford and the program that they've got out there in Palo Alto. So that's kind of been a little bit of a, a joke, I think, on social media that Kennedy might enter the transfer portal and she's going to go to OU. And I guess I'm not, I, for me, it's a little uncomfortable because I would rather her stay at Stanford. Uh, better teams, you know, better competition for OU, better for the sport and so on and so forth. Because, you know, her, the team around her is great. They all were, were great and incredible, but um, she's kind of carrying the team there uh, to some level and getting them to that point until, you know, the offense just can't, produce at that point mm-hmm. but does that kind of make you a little bit uncomfortable or, or are you playing in on the joke there or what 
I don't mind it either way. Um, I mean, I think that a lot of Oklahoma fans, they think about, you know, the two-headed monster of Paige Lowry and Paige Parker. You know, well, if you had Jordy Ball and Kennedy, Oklahoma wouldn't lose a game next season, which, you know, that could could possibly very well be true. Uh, but no, I, I think that it's good for it's good for softball across the country if Kennedy were to stay uh, out in the Pac-12 at Stanford. It's it's good for the brand. It's good for uh, college softball in its entirety because I think you know you just if Stanford's able to figure out a way, whether it's through incoming freshmen in the recruiting class or maybe they can find a, a couple of players in the transfer portal that can you know a couple more bats that they can add to that lineup to go along with that pitching staff. Uh, Stanford should find their way back to, to Oklahoma City next year and, you know, a couple years after the fact, the fact that this girl is only a freshman and she's already as good and as productive as she has been. Uh, keep her out at Stanford, and uh, this could be something where Oklahoma's lineup, uh, we could see her again this time next year. She was fooling our best hatters, uh, best batters consistently. Oh, um, she, had, she had our girls uh, yeah. swinging at pitches over their head. Yeah, it was amazing how, you know, and it's easy, me sitting at home on the couch watching the pitch come in to the plate. I can see it rising, but I know it's different from the batter's box there. And it was just, it was insane to watch, you know, Tiara Jennings swing after swing after swing of pitches that you're like, you know, it's going to be, you know, at her eye level. And she was still swinging at it. But at the end of the day, Jennings got the best of her. Um, She got kind of the last laugh there. It was kind of strange that you would walk Coleman to get to Jennings, um, but you know, it worked out for OU in the end, and, and OU's headed to the championship series against Florida State, a team that we talked about a week ago, and we thought, hey, that's probably one of the teams, one or two teams that you circle and say, yeah, this is probably the best two teams in the country. And for a lot of the season, they were one and two in the polls, uh, ranked very highly, very close to each other. Oklahoma State had a nice run there. UCLA was was up there in the rankings a little bit, but I think Florida State was probably one of the most consistent teams that was uh, playing at an elite level, and they've got a lot of great players in their own right, but um, you know, who should OU fans know about? I know we know a little bit about Florida State because we played them at home uh, in a midweek mm-hmm. game earlier in the year, but who should OU fans know about on this Seminole squad? Well, they better know a lot. Uh, Florida State 58-9 on the year, like you alluded to, Adam. OU faced Florida State earlier this year in Norman where they defeated the Knolls 5-4. Sirocco went four innings. Jordy came in to close it out after OU was able to regain the lead thanks to a couple of back-to-back home runs from Haley Lee and Tiara Jennings to go along with a 3-for-4 performance at the play from Melissa Brito. So uh, this is a very well-coached, very good softball team. Florida State is 3-0, just like Oklahoma uh, so far in the Women's College World Series. They've got wins over Oklahoma State, Washington and Tennessee, and they've outscored their opponents, Adam. Get get this, 16-2. to And in my opinion, they're the most complete team in college softball outside of Oklahoma. Dominant pitching staff uh, led by an All-American and Kat Sandercock in a very well-balanced lineup from top to bottom. Uh, just going back and looking at some of the statistics from how well the Seminoles have done so far in Oklahoma City. Uh, they've got 22 hits so far in the World Series, five of which have left the ballpark. Uh, so this is going to be a really good, really competitive championship series that Oklahoma has found themselves in. And, you know, you just start when you when you try to dissect a team and figure out uh, what could potentially give Oklahoma problems. For me, it starts with uh, the All-American pitcher, Kat Sandercock. 28-3 record on the year, 1.05 ERA with 116 strikeouts to go with less than 30 walks. Um, very, very similar to Jordy in a sense where she can throw uh, every single pitch in the book. She's got the rise ball. She's got the drop ball. Changes speeds really, really well. Keeps the hitters off of balance. So one of the things that I do think is going to give Oklahoma, you, you know, not that they need any advantage or, you know, put their minds at ease whatsoever, it's the fact that they faced Kat Sandercock over the course of, 
you know, of the past couple of seasons a handful of times. So very familiar with what she's going to do. Patty alluded to it earlier today in the uh, in the press conference. They've already been in the film room. They're already looking at tendencies. One of the things uh, that what are some of the things that Kat Sandercock likes to do in uh, challenging uh, the, the hitters, and what are some of the ways that Oklahoma can look to take advantage of some of the things that Kat Sandercock does really well. Um, so yeah, Sandercock to go along with McKenna Reed. I think that. Obviously, we're going to see Kat Sandercock versus Jordy Ball uh, in game one tomorrow night. But then once you start getting into game two, depending on the outcome, uh, Florida State has a very, very competent number two pitcher in uh, McKenna Reed, who is un- unbeaten this year, 13-0, 0.89 ERA in 42 appearances. So a really good one, uh, you know, two-headed monster uh, down there in Tallahassee as far as that pitching staff goes. And then when you flip things over offensively for what Florida State is able to do, like I alluded to earlier, Adam, the most complete lineup Oklahoma has faced uh, so far in the Women's College World Series kind of felt like, you know, Stanford didn't really do anything that, you know, get, was going to give Oklahoma too much concern. Tennessee was a big one, but mainly once you got past the, you know, the top four or five in the lineup, Oklahoma was, was there was really nothing that was, you know, too scary, but Nine players in this Florida State lineup, Adam, hitting above 300. Not a huge power hitting team. Only 62 home runs on the season. Kaylee Harding has 10, uh, and Johnny Kerr has eight, but it is a step up from Stanford. So, um, you know, even though they've only got 62 home runs on the year, they just they do all the little things the right way. They're extremely well coached. They they're patient at the plate. They play the small ball. They've stolen 133 bases on the year. That's one of the top teams in collegiate softball, and they just make you work for every single out on you know both both sides of the field. So they're not going to make a ton of mistakes. Oklahoma's pitching staff has got their work cut out for them, and I'm very eager to see how Patty Gasso and Jen Rocha manage this pitching staff and how they choose to attack this Florida State lineup. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch, Adam. Definitely. If you're not following us on YouTube, you really should be. We're putting that up in the uh, bottom line there, that stat about Florida State having 62 home runs as a team this year. Uh, But if you look at OU's top hitters, just uh, Jennings, Coleman, Hanson, and Brito, they've combined for 64 home runs just by themselves. That's not not counting Haley Lee. You know, she's a power hitter. Uh, Riley Boone's hit some as well. Um, There's a lot of players on this team that are are really lethal and dangerous. So Mm -hmm. there is a different level. You mentioned the multiple players on Florida State's teams that are are hitting over 300. Well, I think it's what six OU hitters are over 400. So mm-hmm. it's like, hey, the Seminoles are great, but then you look at OU's roster and it's like, well, they're they're another step up. And I think that's why you've seen pretty much any team that OU's played this year outside of Stanford and the one pitcher uh, that has been really just locked down on this Sooner lineup. That's why so many good pitchers have, have played this OU team and just run into a buzzsaw of that OU lineup. And so uh, it'll be curious to see what they're able to, to do against OU. And we saw a strategy that, that Florida State tried to implement, uh, at least they did against Tennessee. We've seen other teams try to implement this against OU, where you throw multiple arms and multiple pitchers at, mm-hmm. at the Sooner lineup. Uh, Mac Leonard was one that I think started out the game. McKenna Reed came in, and then Kat Sandercock finished off the game against Tennessee. Yeah, we, we saw four different ones. Yeah, multiple different pitchers there. Do you think that that is the strategy or the best opportunity for Florida State to be competitive and try to uh, steal a game and and make this a competitive series? I mean, I could see it being a situation where if Florida State was able to pick pick up that first win tomorrow night in game one, maybe you do go uh, pitching by committee in game two. But even within the same game, like just switch up so the the lineup doesn't get to see Sandercock 
two, three times before I don't, they I don't figure think, her out, you know? I don't think so because I think at, at this point in the season, I mean, you're in the championship series. You throw your best out there. You you go with the girl that's gotten you all the way up to this point. Like I said, she's 28-3 and three on the year. Kat Sandercock gives Florida State the best opportunity to win a national championship. So you've gotten to this point. Ride with what's gotten you so far. Um, but again, Adam, one thing that I do I do want to make sure that you know many fans – are aware of this is it feels like for for probably 90 percent of the season so far this year for for OU they've either they've been able to win games by only having one phase you know firing on all cylinders if Oklahoma was only able to put up you know two or three runs offensively they were struggling a little bit they had the dominant pitching staff that could kind of hide that or on the flip side if the pitching staff was struggling you know maybe it was one of those games where they gave up five or six runs well then the offense was firing on all cylinders and were able to you know outscore the other team Florida State with how well they you know how well this lineup go uh, you know performs with how dominant this pitching staff is Oklahoma is going to have to play complimentary softball for at least two out of these three games to win a national championship. So you've got to dominate in the circle. You've got to have timely hitting uh, at the right moments uh, in each of these, you know, three games this uh, this starts tomorrow night. So it's going to be a really big test, and I'm, I cannot wait to see how Oklahoma is going to match up. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. You mentioned Jordy Ball likely to be the starter in game mm-hmm. one. But from that point forward, maybe there's one, maybe there's two more games after Wednesday night's opener. We haven't seen Starocko much in this World Series. We saw Nicole May start against Stanford. Um, she let up some early runs uh, in that first couple of innings or two, but then retired 13 in a row. And I don't know why fans are still giving her flack. I mean, she's kind of, she's a victim of, of Jordy Ball being so good. But at the same time, Nicole May is a very effective weapon. She's got a better uh, batting average in ERA than, than Kat Sandercock does. I know she was a name we talked about mm-hmm. uh, a week ago that might be the best pitcher in this tournament. Jordy Ball's been excellent so far. Kennedy was excellent. There are some other pitchers as well that have been absolutely stellar. But, um, you know, what what do you think Patty's going to go with in a Game 2 scenario if you're running out Jordy Ball in Game 1? Well, Adam, just to start here, I mean – we, we talked about this all season long. Alex Straka and Nicole May have both had career years uh, pitching for Oklahoma this season. And, you know, Stanford hit the ball really hard off of Nicole May in that first inning, you know, uh, scoring a couple of runs. But then Nicole really settled down, and I think she retired 13 straight before handing the ball over to Jordy for her to close it out, uh, you know, in the fifth and sixth inning. But I, I do think that this is going to be – it's going to be chalk for the first game. I think you're going to get Jordy Ball versus Cat Sandercock, but uh, you know, so far Jordy in the Women's College World Series. I mean, my God, she has 14 and two thirds innings of work, uh, scoreless pitching. She's got three appearances, two starts, and a relief, and she hasn't given up a run since the since the uh, Super Regional against Clemson. So uh, determination grit she's had full command of every pitch in her arsenal we like we talked about rise ball drop ball change up challenging hitters across all three planes of the strike zone and probably adam the the thing that's really stuck out to me the most about jordy it's when adversity hits and runners get on base it's almost like her demeanor changes and she flips the switch she cranks it up another level and it's almost like she welcomes the challenge of having to get out of those jams and patty gasso she talked about uh jordy in her press conference that I think her quote was is that Jordy was born for those types of moments where she's kind of backed into a corner. She's got to fight her way out of it, figure out a way to get out of those jams. Uh, and like we've seen, you know, over the last, you know, four or five games, she's been able to do so in dominant fashion. But I think you're going to you're going to see Jordy in game one. Obviously, we'll talk best case scenario here. Oklahoma wins game one. 
I don't think you'll see Jordy starting out in game two. Um, I think that it's going to be a situation where Alex Duraco, we haven't seen her too much so far in the Women's College World Series. Well rested. Just very well rested. She's she's already pitched against Florida State earlier this year. She I think she went the first four innings of the game in Norman. You know, she got hit a little bit, but Florida State's a really good team and Starocco's ready to go. Uh, Nicole May is also another viable option. I talked about it. She's having a career year. Kirsten Deal, I feel like I've said it for the last month of the season. I think Patty is saving her for one of these moments. So um, there, there's, you know, we're down to the last couple of moments in the season. So um, I go Jordy game one. I go Starocco game two. If it gets to a winner take all game three, you've got Jordy versus Sandercock again uh, with the uh, national championship on the line. But uh, it also wouldn't surprise me, Adam, because there's been so many rest days in between games so far throughout this tournament. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Jordy takes the ball tomorrow night and she doesn't give it up until uh, the final outs recorded either way. Like we do on most episodes, we we go to Twitter to get input on what you guys think is going to happen. And in this case, we asked you, hey, what do you what do you think is going to happen in the World Series? Is are you going to win 2-0 or are they going to win 2-1? Is Florida State going to win 2-1 or 2-0? Uh, 0% coming in for Florida State winning in a sweep. A uh, very nice 69% of you think OU's going to win 2-0. 27% said OU wins 2-1. And then a uh, very small 4% think FSU wins 2-1. Of course, we, we have a very large OU following on Twitter. So, of course, there's some bias there. But, Tyler, which uh, which side of this uh, are you are you falling in on? I think I'm going to go with the majority uh, of the of the vote here. I think, Adam, I think Oklahoma gets this done in two. Um, I know that whenever we recorded this episode a week ago, you thought that there was probably going to be a pretty decent chance that Oklahoma, somebody was going to get Oklahoma once. Not twice, but Oklahoma was going to have an off game. Somebody was, was going to be able to pick them off one time. And I just think that this is a moment, Adam, where Oklahoma's 59-1 on the year. They've got 51 straight wins. It's a storybook writing itself right now, and I just think that Oklahoma's path to get here has prepared them for this moment. The super regional two-game thriller, winning those two matchups against Clemson, dominating Tennessee, holding that lineup down extremely well, and then you've had two hard-fought wins over a Stanford team that, yes, they don't have much offensively that you've got to deal with and what scares you, but Stanford's pitching staff was elite and Oklahoma had to find ways in crunch time to win both of those games. So OU's been tested very well the last five games that they've taken the field. They found a way, different ways each time to win those games. So they're battle-tested. They're ready for Cat Sandercock, and I think that Oklahoma wins this thing in two. Part of me looks back to past years and says, okay, Patty's been very, very patient in these types of situations with OU. She hasn't pressed to try to win two games in a row. If, if it's not there, she's... She's been okay and said, hey, I, I know I'm confident in my team's ability. I can wait for game three. But for the same reasons that you just pointed out in regards to this team is completely tested. They're not seeing anything brand new. They've already played Florida State. They've played pretty much everybody in the field, uh, the eight teams that made it to <laughs> Oklahoma City. They'd already played them. They'd already beaten many of them. So I don't expect this to be any new challenge. And I almost kind of wonder if Stanford at this point, we didn't mention them last week as OU's biggest uh, threat to winning a title, but that one pitcher in Kennedy um, really slowed down this lineup. And Sandercock, you know, she played against OU in the midweek game. OU still put up five runs there. She didn't play the entire game uh, in back in whatever it was, March or April. But I kind of do think that, yeah, this is not – it's not OU easing up on the gas, but it's like, man, like yeah. you're already to this point. This is nothing new. I almost wonder if the dynamic of what Florida State is and how they are so balanced – 
almost helps play more into OU winning this easier than it was against Stanford. Not to discredit Florida State, like you mentioned, yeah. they're an incredibly talented and balanced team, but mm-hmm. the way that Stanford was composed of, okay, like you're just not going to score. <laughs> like it almost didn't matter that their hitting wasn't really existent at that point. It was a much tougher game for OU. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that Jordy Ball has been the most dominant pitcher so far in this Women's College World Series, but I think you could make the argument, Adam, that in two of the last three games – that Oklahoma has played, they faced the most overpowering pitcher in the in the entire country in the freshman All American. Uh, but one of the things that we did see is yes, as well as Kennedy was able to throw against Oklahoma in that first matchup, Oklahoma having to face that type of pitching, and then you turn the page to where Oklahoma took on Tennessee, and then they pretty, I mean they they run ruled them. They put up nine ten runs on this one. So. Again, coming off of two out of three matchups where you where you had to go up against Kennedy. Yes, I know that Kat Sandercock is great in her own way, but she doesn't have that that overpowering f- uh, velocity uh, where she's able to throw 73, 74, 75. I think she kind of tops out at about 68 to 69 miles per hour. So, again, Oklahoma's seen her a handful of times. They've been in the film room. They're very familiar with what Kat, Kat Sandercock likes to do and what's given her success. It's what's turned her into an All-American throughout her career in Tallahassee. So, I just think in this in this type of at, this atmosphere, and we can touch on the home field advantage here in a second. I I think that this plays into Oklahoma's hands very well, and I think OU takes this ta- uh, takes this game, uh, or excuse me, takes this national championship series in two games. You kind of mentioned that home field advantage that OU has, and of course that comes up every World Series because OU's playing there. They're they're kind of the home team. Uh, didn't seem to help out Oklahoma State any. Um, they're not playing yeah, how'd that, in the, how'd in that the go title for series. Yeah, exactly. So for both teams, for both stickball teams, how'd that go for you? Yeah, exactly. So you you know, there's a lot of hate going on to OU. OU's the number one program. They're getting more and more dominant every year, it seems. Um, they're getting whoever they want out of the transfer portal. They're pretty much getting every recruit. We we tweet about that a little bit from the mainline pod. So make sure you're following us there to, to keep up with some of the recruits that are coming in on the softball side of things. But one of the biggest things that's come up over the weekend is that, oh, wow, this team celebrates a lot. And, you know, I think it's just, to me, it's a symbol that, OU's doing the things the right way, essentially. Like, Patty's got this machine humming, and we talk about this every week. They're almost boring to talk about because they destroy pretty much everyone they played in the regular season. It's not, uh, it's exciting to watch because they win, but there's no drama or storyline to it because she's built this monster of a softball program. You get there into the final series, and you can tell that there's a lot of people that aren't following this sport on a regular basis until Mm -hmm. their team that they cheer for in football happens to be in the World Series, like a Tennessee fan, for example. I'm not saying that they're the ones that were doing this, but you know they have a lot of football fans. They tune in. Oh, hey, our team's in the World Series for softball. Let's. I don't know any of my players' names, but oh man, I hate OU because they celebrate so much. And that is just a symbol to me that hey, it's OU's doing something right. Like they're the Georgia, they're mm-hmm. the Alabama of of football. They're or, uh, you know they're the Kansas of basketball, for example. But that's what we are in softball at this point. Yeah, let's pray that Danny Cannell stays off of Twitter uh, <laughs> over the, over the next two to three nights. No uh, kidding. That'll be good for all softball fans, not for just uh, just OU fans in general. Uh, but yeah, Adam, I think that this is an instance where Oklahoma, OU softball is in the same category when you talk about some of the all-time teams that basically other fan bases, they are rooting for any team possible that is that is facing Oklahoma to beat them just simply because we're tired of the, the dominant stretch of softball or basically that has gone, you know, over the last 10 to 15 years because Patty Gasso has built this thing into, like you said, uh, just an absolute monster. 
but I think that this is an instance, Adam, to where we, t- we talk about the celebration and I, I can somewhat understand, you know, people thinking that it rubs them the wrong way where, you know, if, if Oklahoma walks, you know, you slam the bat on the ground, you, you, you know, you run down to first base pumping up the crown, but also at the same time too, this is what this team's done, you know, all season long. And if you have a problem with it, don't let them get on base. If you have a problem with how they celebrate, get them out. Don't let them hit home runs. Don't let them get on base. Don't let them embarrass you. Uh, especially in this type of setting, because, you know, Adam, we talked about the the home field advantage. It didn't impact UCLA softball. It didn't impact OSU softball or baseball over the last few days. Oklahoma, or, you know, OSU baseball just got run ruled uh, and, you know, basically, you know, steamrolled off their own field by two, you know, inferior opponents. But I think that the championship series, Adam, is where the home field advantage really starts to settle in because tomorrow night in Florida State, they've been in this environment before. Tomorrow night, it's going to be FSU's player guest section and maybe a few other Seminoles uh, fans sprinkled in in the crowd versus 12,000-plus OU fans. So if Oklahoma can jump out, uh, jump on them early, capture the momentum, really get the crowd into this thing, we'll see how Florida State handles the pressure. But I don't have any problem with how this team celebrates with the way that they play the game. Um, and if, you, if any Oklahoma fan or any softball fan watched Oklahoma's press conference from earlier today, they hear the noise and they make no apologies whatsoever for the way that they play the game and how they celebrate doing it. Yeah. Knock on wood for pretty much everything that's going to follow for the rest of the softball segment before we talk a little bit about baseball, but there's a pretty big legacy impact that's, you know, on the table this (laughs) series for Patty Gasso potentially winning three in a row uh, for, I mean, we've got a new stadium coming. There's likely going to be a statue. Everyone just talks about it. Like it's a foregone conclusion at this point. Um, but you got a lot of players on this team that are, are building an incredible legacy that may be near impossible uh, for anyone else to top, you know, once they're done. Because you look at the juniors on this team, like T.R.A. Jennings and Jada Coleman, kind of the leaders of this team. Nicole May. Nicole May, another one. They're going for their third straight national championship. Um, we highlighted earlier in the show that six Sooners uh, of the uh, of the team this year won a national championship against the same Florida State team in 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's a lot of players that – are going to be remembered um, at a very high level if they're able to pull off a third national championship. And then, not to peek too far ahead, but um, you know they're gonna—they're not going anywhere. Like there's no, you know, MLB or NFL or something for them to jump early to. It there's you know some pro teams developing. You know, uh, our friend Tina's getting the spark started here in Oklahoma City this season. That uh, I think is pretty exciting, but. There's really not a ton of money for them to jump out of college early for that opportunity. They're they're making more money as mm-hmm. a collegiate athlete at this point, um, but you have some players that are, are going to have an opportunity to do something really special. I think uh, I need to do more research on this, but I'm pretty sure Riley Boone and Kenzie Hansen can come back for an extra year as well because of COVID. Yep. So, yep. Um, and, and you know Kirsten Deal, we've seen her <laughs> look incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she's going to fill right in as the third starter at, at minimum if you don't go into the portal and get some uh, some other arms there. But I, yeah, there's just going to be an incredible legacy impact just on the table for this players, this coach, the program as a whole. Yeah, if Oklahoma is able to pull this off over the next over the next two to three nights, we're talking about what's going to be Patty's seventh national championship at Oklahoma. Sixth in the last 11 years, five out of the last eight in the first three-peat in program history. And that's probably across all sports at the University of Oklahoma that a program has won three straight national championships. I'd have to dive back into the records of our gymnastics programs. But, you know, Patty Gasso, she's already thought of by many as the best coach in OU history. 
If she wins a national championship over the next two, three days, this cements that legacy even further. And I think it puts her in the elite category, Adam, where you've got to start having the conversation that she's part of this, this category of all-time head coaches across all sports. The the John Wooden, the Lombardi, Bear Bryant, Coach K, Saban, Geno, uh, Pat Summit, uh, Phil Jackson, uh, another one as well. What Patty's been able to do over her time at Oklahoma, especially over the last 10 to 15 years, turning this program into a juggernaut that is, that is just – I, I don't think dominant is a strong enough word for, for how tight of a grasp she's got on the, on this, uh, this sport of college softball. But I mean, you, you touched on it, Adam, this program's not going anywhere anytime soon. And I know that you're going to graduate a couple of people, uh, you know, grace lines being the most notable one. So that's going to be big, you know, a big hole to fill, but I can promise you, Adam, if this program wins a third straight national championship with Love's Field, a brand new ballpark opening up next year that's going to be the nicest in college softball, you've got a top recruiting class coming in, true freshmen that are going to join Patty's uh, Patty's bunch. I guarantee you, you're going to have people in the transfer portal. It's not going to be the other way around where Patty's reaching out to these these kids. You're going to have girls, elite, talented people leaving programs wanting to come play at a place like Oklahoma. And I'm sorry, but they're not going anywhere. They're going to win another national championship over the next two to three nights. And this train's going to keep on rolling into the SEC next year. And I, I, I can't wait. It's so much fun to watch. Yeah, there's a lot of noise about Alex Starocco and some of the Twitter things that are happening on there where her coach was basically like, hey, you should, should stay at Michigan and build something. And I, I get it. There's there's a nice aspect to that. But at the same time, like this is the peak, the prime for softball players. Like we mentioned, there's no pro league that you can go to to raise your fame or to raise your income uh, for, you, for your family for the rest of your life, essentially. Like this is the peak of what they're able to earn. And mm-hmm. if you're at a school like Michigan, or I know there's a, a big transfer, uh, freshman transfer from Indiana that hit over 300 this mm-hmm. year that I'm sure Patty would love to find a spot in the lineup for someone like that. And I'm sure she will. But if you're someone like that and you're at a school like Indiana and you're thinking, hey, you know, maybe I'm not the best fit or I want to move on to a different opportunity, why not OU? Because look at who's in the stands tomorrow night that's going to be on TV on that front row. You're going to see stars and studs from a year ago, from four years ago, from 10 years ago, and so forth that are still profiting off of what they did as a Sooner with that jersey on. Not what they're doing, you know, they're, some of them are doing some good things, um, you know, on TV or, or with, you know, the OKC Spark or something like that. But their, you know, their name and, and what they're able to accomplish now is because of first that jersey that they put on mm-hmm. at Maria Hines Field. So why not come be a part of that, build your legacy, make your earnings now and kind of have a, some security, uh, you know, for a little while, at least after college for, you know, all the different things that are popping up and how much OU fans are recognizing these softball players and the greatness that they're able to do on mm-hmm. the field. So don't blame them whatsoever. Adam, I just want to throw this out there here real quickly uh, for the former Michigan coach and former Michigan players that have kind of made it a point to basically subtweet Alex Draco. The Wolverines this year were 26 and 25 overall and 10 and 13 in Big Ten conference play. So clearly, Storocco made the right decision. She's going to be playing for a national championship tomorrow night. Uh, and like you alluded to, Adam, there's going to be more championship rings in that first row of the OU alumni section than, I don't know, what do we want to do? Go back 10, 15 years across the board. So obviously, Storocco made the right decision. And I'm just I'm just excited to get this to, to get this thing going tomorrow night. I don't think that you could have you could have drawn up a more 
well-balanced matchup as far as two teams going up against each other than the Seminoles and the Sooners. And again, it's going to, it's going to come down to which pitching staff is able to be most consistent, uh, who can play good, you know, mistake-free defense and which player in which lineup is going to get that timely hit in the critical moment to put their team over the top. Uh, and they're 59 and one for a reason. They've given me no, no possible reason to bet why Oklahoma is not going to be raising up a third straight national championship trophy uh, here in the next couple of nights. Not going to get 32 minutes of softball talk pretty much anywhere else. I know no. a few people are jumping no. on the bandwagon here once we're in the postseason, but uh, we like to pride ourselves on talking as much uh, depth across the board of Sooner Sports as, as really any podcast out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, next week, we'll get back to a little bit more football talk as we've got some pretty cool things coming up, uh, announcements uh, for SEC opponents potentially next week. Uh, but today, we're just a little focused still on stick sports. So uh, I think it's time to talk a little bit about baseball. Let me tee this up for you, Adam. Obviously, Oklahoma's baseball season came to an end over the weekend out in the Charlottesville region. The season's over. We've kind of had a couple of days to reflect, look back on it. What letter grade are you giving this team and Skip uh, Skip Johnson? Yeah, I uh, I think I'm a little bit more critical of baseball. Um, I feel, you know, like I have a different connection because of my my past background. Um, you know, doing some ticket sales there. I wasn't a part of the team or in the dugout or anything like that. I'm not cool. I was just helping sell tickets, but. I felt like I was invested in the success of that program. So I am going to grade them a little bit more critically than, than some others might. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of OU fans, you know, myself included football is number one. And so we, we know every detail about what's going on in football. And then we kind of wake up in the spring and we go, Oh yeah, what's, what's men's basketball up to what's, what's baseball up to. And I hope we can just make the postseason. Like we have such lower expectations for some of these programs. And so some other fans may disagree with me here. I think they, a lot of fans might go higher and just say, hey, it was great to make the postseason. I'll give it a B. Um, and that's kind of me taking off some of my my harsh critic hat a little bit. I think I, my initial instinct was go a little bit lower. Um, yes, there was a lot of guys that left this team. I think we had 11 players drafted in the MLB. Um, you had a lot of new faces. Um, you, you still made the postseason by the skin of your teeth, essentially. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people in Manhattan that said, hey, we could have done better in Charlottesville than OU did. Maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. I think OU did nicely to, to bounce back and and have a complete game shutout uh, from, from Braxton Douthat on Saturday yeah. against Army. That was incredible mm-hmm. uh, and unexpected. And I kind of thought for a second, I was like, this this is what we talked about last week. Like, this is the X factor, the player that you, you don't see it coming from, that you need a big performance from. And he absolutely delivered on Saturday for the Sooners. Unfortunately, couldn't, couldn't get things together against ECU. They really just had that one bad inning there that – uh, was the difference in the game. The rest of it was pretty much, you know, even keeled uh, for OU against ECU. But overall, from a season perspective, there's inconsistencies. Um, you know, there were some injuries. Dakota Harris, Easton Carmichael, Kendall Pettis, um, you know, all suffered from from various injuries. Some of the pitching staff had some some injuries. You had shuffling throughout the year. It really wasn't even settled um, into the last regional weekend of what the rotation looked like and who was going to pitch when. Um, you know, there, there wasn't reliability out of the bullpen. So, yes, there was a lot that you lost, but by the time you get to the end of the season, I don't really think that you can blame it so much on, hey, we lost 11 players. Like, you've had a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of other guys getting tons of experience playing on the field, and they did round into probably their best form towards the end of the year, but I I guess there's some good and bad. You know, that's kind of a B grade. You know, the the good is, hey, you got off the roller coaster that Skip had this program on uh, over the last, basically his entire tenure of, Make the tournament, don't make the tournament. Make the tournament, don't make the tournament. Yeah. Now we've made it twice in a row. And and that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. Um, is there something to be excited about next year? I, 
I, I guess I'm not not 100% sold on that um, just yet. Maybe we can dive into that a little bit, but I'd say a B grade is is probably where I would land. Are you kind of in the same boat there? Yeah, I'm in the same line of thinking with you with you as well. I mean, I, I don't think that you, I don't think that you can evaluate and talk about the performance of this team without having to mention the fact that they did lose 11 players to the MLB draft last year. So they had a lot to replace, especially uh, in the bullpen with this pitching staff. But you talked about the inconsistencies, you know, playing very, very well one day and then, you know, fast forward to the weekend, Matt, the, the week. Or inning uh, to inning even. Or inning to inning. I mean, you, you just go back and, you know, look at the Big 12 tournament play. You take care of business against Oklahoma State in game one. Then you have a commanding lead against Texas Tech in, you know, the next night where you've really put yourself in a good possession or position to at least get to the semifinals, if not the, the championship game. And then you blow that lead uh, late in the game to Texas Tech. But, again – I think that one of the thing, one of the positives that you can talk about with this team and with basically Skip Johnson and this program as a whole, Skip has reestablished that the the standard for this Oklahoma baseball program at the end of the year is playing in the postseason. We've done it each of the last two years. That's the standard moving forward. Um, I know that there there is a lot of uncertainty uh, with some of the guys that are coming back next year. Who's going to you know be that breakout star or who's going to be the you know, the, the core that's going to kind of lead this Oklahoma baseball team going into 2024. Um, but again, I like where Oklahoma is at. I give them a B minus on the year because of these, some of the injuries, because of some of the inconsistencies, they probably should, could have had a better draw than the Charlottesville region. If they would have played a little bit more consistent complimentary baseball. Uh, but I, I like the direction that skip has got this program in and, uh, there's some momentum going into next year. Feel confident saying that with us looking forward to next year, Adam, and I talked about who's going to be that core, who's going to be some of the the key players, who are the building blocks for next season for Skip's bunch. Yeah, I think this year we were looking for a lot of those freshmen from that Omaha run to really take a big leap. And it was pretty bumpy for a lot of them. John Spikerman got off to a really rough start, but as we uh, posted on Twitter maybe a week or so ago, he had an incredible May. He was, he was incredible in Charlottesville. Um, I think you like the direction that he's heading. Um, he's proven to be elite as a defender in center field. It's really hard to uh, get a ball past him. He's got so much speed back there, but uh, he also found his way back to that leadoff position in the batting lineup, and I think that is a really effective piece to have uh, leading off your ball club there. So I think you feel excited about him. Kendall Pettis still has another year of, a year of eligibility. He's been around forever. Um, he had a really great year. He didn't finish on the the greatest of, of hitting streaks necessarily, but I think he's pretty reliable. Another guy with a ton of speed in the outfield and on the base path, so I think you like that. Um, Wallace Clark, a guy, a freshman, that I think we wanted to have that bigger leap. We'll see. Uh, you know, I think he's he, he does the most with the tools that he has and getting effective at-bats, but... You know, that's a position where, you know, you hope he improves a lot, but at the same time, if there's someone in the portal that is able to come in and potentially take that role of third base, you know, so be it. You know, this is a team, mm-hmm. this is the SEC going forward that uh, after next year it is uh, that you say, hey, it's cutthroat. Like, we, we got to win uh, at this point. So um, I think there's some pieces there. Jackson Nicholas is probably the biggest question mark this offseason. I think a lot of people have already invited him into the transfer portal after the way he finished the year, but uh, he's still a bat that if he can find some consistency – uh, he can do a lot of damage. Uh, he can be one of those power hitters, something that this OU lineup doesn't necessarily have. They're not known for that. They're they're known for the chaos, of course. So the more you can have a power hitter in the lineup, the better, I think. So you do want Jackson Nicholas to come back. You want him to figure out some of those fielding errors that he had uh, late in the season that kind of broke the back of the OU team in a few games. But you want him to figure that out. You want him to be back. And then on the mound, um, you know, you got Jamie Hitt coming back. I think he's a guy that um, will be the lead 
pitcher uh, on a weekend series, mm-hmm. at least as it stands right now. You'd like for some other arm to develop. We don't know who that might be. Maybe it's someone from the portal. Um, we'll see. I think you definitely need some portal help because you've just had so many inconsistencies, and that was probably the least reliable part about this team was just pitching and bullpen. Um, but if Jamie Hitt can come back, if he can improve, um, maybe he's still your Saturday guy, but ideally he's your Sunday guy because you've brought in so many guys that are are, are that much better. Um, and if he's your Sunday guy, you've got a really elite pitching staff there. Mm-hmm. But I will say that the one thing that I do want to mm-hmm. see continue to build the most important thing is just fan support. Uh, we saw that a lot this season. We saw, I think, some records as far as um, you know total attendance in a season. We saw a record, I think, for one of those OSU Bedlam games in, in single-game attendance. Um, the, I went to a couple games this year. I wasn't able to make as many as I would have liked to. Um, but every time I went, the crowd was great. And mm-hmm. so we need to improve on that. It needs to be even more this upcoming year. And I, I think that's a really simple and easy ask for OU fans that maybe – say, hey, I'm, I'm not really into baseball or maybe I, I don't have time to, you know, or haven't paid attention to it much. Like, just do a little bit more than you did last year. If you didn't watch any games, maybe watch watch one. It's easy to, to throw it on the TV or, or listen to it on the radio while you're doing chores around the house. Or if you made one game, like, try to make two. You know, do something just a little bit extra because the SEC is coming. And we're I think a lot of people saw that this uh, past weekend in regional play, the SEC regionals and how much different those atmospheres are. And OU needs to raise their game up to in order to be competitive. So just do a little bit more, you know, a little building block. You don't have to go to every single game if you didn't go to, you know, one this year. But do do one more than you did last year and build on that for uh, the 2024 season. Yeah, Adam, I really don't have too much to add on that. You took the words right out of my mouth with the fan support. And, you know, it's going to be it's going to be pivotal. It's going to be key for Oklahoma uh, for the team next year, you know, to continue riding this way, building the momentum, going into the SEC uh, the, the following season. But it's also just as pivotal and important for for this fan base to take it up to take it up one, if not two notches uh, next year. Because, you know, if if you've watched any SEC play, whether it's regular season, whether it's the conference tournament, whether it's the atmospheres that are at some of these regionals, Florida, Arkansas, LSU, Texas A&M, Tennessee. It's a whole different ball game down south in college in college baseball in terms of fan support. You've got ten to fifteen thousand people turning out for uh, for a Saturday matchup between LSU and Tennessee. That's something that Oklahoma fans we're gonna have to step our game up a little bit. I know the Eldell Mitchell Park is not as nice as some of the other ballparks that we're gonna be traveling and visiting once we make it into the Southeastern Conference, but uh, with the with the burn. Uh, with the uh, the atmosphere, you can still turn Eldell Mitchell into a pretty ruckus crowd and a tough place for for teams to have to come and play. So, again, let's keep building on that. I like the direction that Skip Johnson's got this program in. I like that Oklahoma fans took it up another notch this year with their fan support, with the fan attendance. Let's drive that momentum home and keep this thing going into next season. Open up the pocketbooks. Let's get a new stadium. Let's get some NIL money, right? <laughs> uh, well, in NIL money, we might want to keep funneling that to football right now because recruiting is struggling a little bit. But we'll touch on that next week. Don't hit the panic button. Stay off of social media. Stay out of kids' inboxes. Uh, it's going to be okay. Sooner fans, we're going to be all right. We'll, we'll talk a lot more about that next week because we do have a big recruiting weekend coming up here in about a week and a half. Uh, so we'll dive into that on next week's podcast. But we appreciate everyone listening. If you made it this far. Real quick, Adam, real quick. SEC schedule announced next week. We will find out who the opponents that Oklahoma is going to be matching up with next year. Put you on the spot, Adam. Who is one opponent? If you could pick any opponent in the SEC that's going to come to Norman next year, who's it going to be? Mm, I almost I almost don't care who comes to Norman. I think it's more about where OU goes, but I'd have to say like Alabama, right? Just 
for one, as a ticket resale value, right? Yeah, <laughs> for, as a season for, ticket holder. As a season ticket holder. That's going to um, look good. But I mean, I mean, there's so many matchups that would be super juicy. Uh, and on one hand, I do want to see Alabama and Georgia's of the world. On the other hand, do I want to see them playing Jackson Arnold? I, I'm not sure. So I'm totally cool with, you know, South Carolina, Kentucky, mm-hmm. you know, Vanderbilt. If Tennessee, that's our schedule, Hypo Tennessee, coming back. yeah, like I, I really don't care. Everyone's going to be new flavor and everyone's going to treat it like if it's Vanderbilt, well, maybe not Vanderbilt, but if it's like South Carolina, Kentucky, they'll think those are the biggest games in the world until it turns into the new you know, hey, Iowa State. For them, I was just so. about to say, it's not Kansas. It's not Iowa State. So yep. embrace it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And again, we appreciate you guys for joining us. If you haven't given us a follow on Twitter, it's at the Mainline Pod. You can find all of our content on YouTube as well. Just search the Mainline Podcast. Uh, and again, for Adam Jarquez and Tyler Burton, we appreciate you guys for joining us. And we will be back right here next week for another episode of the Mainline Podcast. <laughs>